Chris Riddell asked, asked me after the uh, first service how it went. And uh, it's one of those mornings when there seemed to be no connection between my brain and my mouth. Every time I uh, said something, I had to back up and say it, say it again. And I told him it uh, reminded me of BSU's victory yesterday. Uh, fumbled uh, the ball a number of times, number of turnovers, uh, like Roy Regals ran the wrong way a couple of times, but uh, it was ugly, but we got, we got through it. So uh, I hope in the meantime, uh, with a cup of coffee and a little bit to eat, my brain is beginning to clear up. Turn to First uh, Timothy 6, if you will. And I would like to begin reading with verse 11. A number of years ago, a friend and I uh, were out in the desert, on the Owyhee Desert. Uh, I'd spent the uh, day bouncing around in a Jeep. And uh, we were tired and hungry. We hadn't eaten all day. And we uh, stumbled upon a little bar and grill outside of Oriana. Uh, There's more bar than grill. And uh, went in looking for a hamburger or something to tide us over till we got home. And the first thing we noticed as we walked in the door is that, is that the bar was filled with uh, a bunch of uh, boisterous, uh, rowdy, Owyhee County buccaneers or buckaroos. Uh, their big hats and their fringed boots. and They were making a lot of noise. Uh, most of them had several sheets in the wind and... And the second thing that we noticed is the moment we set foot in the place, it just got deathly quiet, uh, ominously so. And every eye in, in the place was fixed on us. Uh, my friend says to me, uh, I ain't hungry, are you? <clears throat> said, nah. And uh, we beat a hasty retreat. As Shakespeare says, sometimes uh, discretion is the greater part of valor. Uh, there's some hills on which you do not choose to die. Um, Paul was of the same mind. There's some things uh, from which we should flee. And that's his his argument here in this passage. Th- this passage of Scripture is one that has really uh, gripped me over the past week. It is a description of what Paul calls a man of God. I tried throughout the first service to be a little more gender sensitive and talk about men and women of God, and I kept stumbling over that phrase, but it just gets to be awkward after a while. I kept talking about a man of God, a woman of God, and I'm not going to do that this hour. I'm going to talk about a man of God, and I hope you women will understand. I know for some of you that is is slightly offensive, but I want to use this term the way Paul used it. As a matter of fact, the way our English language originally used it, our word man, comes from an old English word that means minded person, a human being. Uh, the, as a matter of fact, the word that Paul uses for man anthropos means one who looks up, one who's oriented uh, toward things other than the world, spirited man. And so when I use the term that way, I want you to understand that I'm using it in a, in a gender non-specific way and referring to men uh, and women as well. Uh, Paul writes in verse 11, Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. 
Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of, of many witnesses. Uh, Paul has been writing about people that want to get rich. People who live their whole lives to make money and to acquire things. Whose penchant in, in life is the pursuit of goods. Uh, Paul says, flee from all that. Uh, make tracks, beat feet. As Speedy Gonzalez used to say, uh, andale, andale, arriba, arriba, zip, 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 and off we go. We need to turn our backs upon upon goods and pursue after God. One necessarily involves the other. This phrase, man of God, is, is really intriguing. Uh, to me, it's a, it's a venerable old term. It comes out of the Old Testament. It's used sparingly in the Old Testament of only a few people. It's used of Moses, for example, that great man of God, as he's designated. Never called himself that. But the compiler of Deuteronomy, the one who gathered his sermons together, calls him the, the man of God, Moses the man of God, and then the uh, Psalm, who, whoever collected the Psalms, again, wrote the title to his Psalm, the only Psalm that Moses wrote, Psalm 90. He says, this is a Psalm of Moses, the man of God. The, the, the name stuck. He was, he was given that designation, that title, over and over again. Uh, Elijah is another who's described as, as a man of God. He was given that title by the, uh, this dear Phoenician woman that he befriended, she was a pagan. She was a, wasn't an Israelite. She was an unbeliever. God had transplanted Elijah out of Israel over into Phoenicia to give witness, to protect him from Jezebel and her furious uh, rage, but, but basically to give witness to this one woman. 100-mile trip across country. We're given a description of how she took him in and, and he... Uh, he loved her little boy. <laughs> he taught her the word, but, but the thing that seems to have made the biggest impact on her was the fact that he loved her little boy. Uh, years ago, I uh, we had in our home a man that I think would often be called a man of God. He, he's very prominent, very well-known uh, public figure, public Christian figure. And the thing that struck me about him is that he, he didn't love our children. Kids were small. They bugged him. They annoyed him, I could tell. He didn't want him around. Wouldn't talk to him. The whole time he was with us, it bothered me. I kept thinking of George MacDonald's famous phrase that a man of God is one around whom whose gate one around whose gate and garden children are unafraid to play. That's the way he puts it. The point is that she saw the quality of his life. Here is a man who who was known for his miraculous doings, but what for her, impelled her toward God was the fact that here was a man who loved her children, who loved her. You know, home life is usually where we uh, we shuck our self-restraint, we let it all hang out. But here, here was a man who, who in private was what he was in public and had a tremendous impact on him. She said, now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of God is, is in your mouth. Another person who's called a man of God in the Old Testament is Elisha. Long before he ever did any miracles. He was known for doing miracles, but before. 
There was a certain woman in, in uh, Galilee, wealthy, uh, out of a wealthy family, who said to her husband, we need to arrange a little place for Elisha to stay because I have observed him, and he's a man of God. It's a wonderful title, man of God. It's one we can all grow into. You know, it's, when you think of that, you think of someone who's austere, redoubtable, scary almost. But it's a title that, that can grace all of us. It's within our, it's within our grasp. It's true for both men and women. And what Paul does in this passage, and this is what has been so intriguing to me about this passage, is that he gives us the marks of a man of God. A man of God is known by what he flees from, from what he follows after, what he fights for, and what he focuses on. Those are the four uh, parameters, the four pillars of, of a man of God. Now, uh, first, a man of God is one who follows after God, who flees from goods and things and, and investing his or her life in, in material goods and he pursues after God with all of his or her heart and, and soul. The, the word that Paul uses for pursuit here is a word that's used in the book of Acts of his persecution of Christians. It means hot pursuit. And that, that ought to be the tenor uh, of our life. We follow hard after God. Notice how he puts it. Flee these things. That is the things of which he's been speaking in the paragraph before. You man of God and pursue after righteousness. You know, the odd thing is that nobody has to tell us what righteousness is. We know. We know inherently. I don't have to tell you what's good. We know. You know if I hold a stick behind my back and I tell you it's straight, you know precisely what it's like. You can even you can draw a picture of it. I tell you it's crooked, you don't have any idea. But straight is a concept that we understand. Righteousness, likewise, is a concept that we understand. We know. Nobody has to tell us what it means to be a true woman or a true man characterized by courage and grace and thoughtfulness and compassion and strength and, and uh, love. Paul says that's that's one mark that we pursue after righteousness, after holiness. It's a growing thing. It's not something that, that we can acquire overnight. You know, when we start talking about righteousness, we all flinch because we know how far short we fall. But what God is after is the intent of the heart. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's what we're intent upon, it's what we want. So we're moving toward that matters. We'll, we'll fail from, from time to time. There may even be extended periods of, of failure, but the question is, what, what do we want? I read a story once about Ansel Adams, the uh, uh, famous photographer who in his youth was apparently a, an accomplished uh, musician. Uh, showed great, uh, great promise. At one recital, he played one of uh, Chopin's uh, pieces, F Major Nocturne. Uh, he explains it this way. He was, he was at a recital and he said, in some strange way my right hand started off in F sharp major while my left hand behaved well in F major. Uh, I could not bring them together. I went through the entire nocturne with my hands separated by a half step. 
And the next day, a friend of his stopped him, complimented him on his performance, and said, Ansel, you never missed a wrong note. And I thought when I read that, I shoot, I've gone whole weekends like that where I haven't missed a wrong note. We all struggle. But the question is, what do we want? Man of, man of God wants with all of his or her heart and soul to reflect the character of Christ to make invisible the, his, his invisible, uh, virtues. Uh, the second word that he uses to describe that pursuit is godliness. That's a term that we've come across time and time again in 1 Timothy. I spent an entire Sunday talking about that term. It's the word for spirituality, or piety, to use that old term. It's the pursuit of God himself, longing for God, giving ourselves to him, sitting at his feet, listening to him, learning from him, plumbing his depths. People's needs are excruciatingly deep. We have got nothing to say to them unless we know the deep things of God. And that's what Paul is talking about, just pursuing after God himself with all of our hearts, understanding his heart, learning to think what he thinks, love what he loves, hate what he hates. It's that devotion of, of heart that is really the key to, uh, to everything question is, is his word our constant study? Is his will our consistent preoccupation? Are we listening to his voice when he calls to us and are we drawing ever closer to him? It's intimacy with God that he describes here in this term godliness. Third word is faith or actually faithfulness. Men and women of God follow after faithfulness. Uh, patiently doing what God is, has called us to do. Some of you, for one reason or another, uh, may feel that you've been sidelined, benched, whatever. You're housebound with small children, or you're bedridden at times, or have been. Feel unfruitful, uh, unproductive, feeling that you're doing nothing of value. There are others that have the big answers, and they're doing the, the great deeds, but uh, you're not doing anything really, really worthwhile. Um, what Paul wants us to understand is that what really matters is just being faithful where we are. There, there's one proverb that I often quote. Everyone will proclaim his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. We're always looking for success. What God is looking for is faithful men and women that will just live out the life of, of God right, uh, right where they are. I received a letter this past week. Many of you did as well from one of our missionaries. Uh, this couple uh, live on an island, and the bridge onto that island was wiped out. A hundred-year-old bridge finally just fell down. So they're stranded. They're marooned. Uh, this person can't get to his work, and people can't get to him, and he's wondering what he should be doing with his time now. And it struck me when I read through this letter that I, I want to write him and, and share with him what, what Peter said. Peter said, add to your faith virtue, and the virtue knowledge, and the knowledge self-control. Because if you do these things, he said, you're not going to be unproductive or unfruitful. See what he's saying? We're always looking for the, the evangelism explosion. And we want big things to happen. And what God is saying is that God's man, 
God's woman is just faithfully doing what God has called him or her to do right, right where you are. Annie Johnson Flint has written, Fret not because your place is small, your service need not be. For you can make it all there is of joy and ministry. In you his mighty hand can show the wonders of his grace, and he can make the humblest room a high and holy place. Your life can know the blessedness of resting in his will. His fullness flows unceasingly your cup of need to fill. His strength upon your weakness waits, his power for your task. What moral child of all his care could any great one ask? Many a man claims to have unfailing love, but a faithful man who can find. So uh, we should be pursuing after righteousness, godliness, faith, and then love. Uh, there's that word again. It just keeps showing up that debt that we owe to every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. Paul says, don't keep on owing anyone anything except the love. That's a debt we will never discharge. To love the unlovely. To love those that are unlike us. To love them with a love that is as extensive and as comprehensive as, as our Lord's love. Perseverance. Just hanging in there over the long haul no matter how difficult circumstances may be. And then finally, an interesting word, uh, my translation translates it gentleness. It only occurs here in the, uh, in the New Testament. Uh, it's a word, it's actually a, a composite word. Paul uh, didn't coin it. It's found in, in other literature of this time, but it's two words stuck together. It really means a, a, a gentle humility. It's hard to define. It, it, the phrase that always comes to mind when I think of this word is, is James' word, gentle wisdom. It's the capacity to, to make your way through life and, and do so quietly and gently, but, but powerfully, leaving a word here and, and there, able to cope with circumstances. There's a term that often turns up in and books for pastors, maintaining a non-anxious presence. That, it's, that, it's that idea that he's, he's trying to get across in this, uh, in this word. Uh, I think of Moses. Uh, he's described as the meekest man on the face of the earth. Not weak. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. It's that word. The capacity to hold yourself back in certain circumstances and, and to be kind and tolerant of those that, that abuse or, or misuse you in various various ways. Now, Paul says these are the things we need to be pursuing. Actually, I think the only way you can flee from goods and things and money and wealth is to flee toward God. And we're going to talk more about this week because next week because Paul expands on this uh, this notion of money and what it's for, but. But the main thing uh, to see is that the, the way to deal with our materialism, the way to deal with our love of mammon is to love God. Jesus said you cannot, cannot love God and mammon. It doesn't say you shouldn't, it says you can't. And that's an interesting idea that if you love God, then you will lose your love for mammon. If you, lose, if you love mammon, you'll lose your love for God. You'll give yourself the lesser choice. You'll, as Paul describes it here, your life will be full of pain and and hurt. 
or you can pursue after God and His goodness. Man of God is known for what he pursues after. Okay. Secondly, a man of God is one who who uh, fights the right fight. He fights the good fight. He's known for what he fights for. Uh, Paul says uh, in verse 11, uh, pardon me, verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. This is Paul's way of describing the battle for men and women's souls. He's not talking about the fight to retain our faith. That's God's job. Uh, God is the one who gives us faith. These attacks upon our faith are simply that. They, when, when we doubt, doubt is not a failure of faith. It's an attack upon our faith. And all we can do at those times is turn to our Lord and ask Him to renew our faith. Faith is a gift of God, Paul says. It comes from reading the Word and letting God translate it into our experience. So we're not talking about the fight to retain our faith. We're talking about the fight for men and women's souls. We're in great, engaged in a great cosmic struggle. Paul says, fight for the faith. Give it away. Share it with people. See, mo- most of your friends out there have never heard an intelligent presentation of the gospel. Most of them think of your Christianity in terms of certain causes, uh, some of them very good causes, but moral causes, political causes that Christians traditionally have have espoused, and they do not know what Christians really believe. I'm always amazed. Now, here, here we are in so-called Christian America. Actually, we're living in what many have described as a post-Christian era. Not that there are no Christians around. There are probably more Christians around today than ever before. But Christianity is no longer discussed in the public arena. These are not the things that are discussed on the floor of the of the legislature or on the campus or in your in your classroom or or in your office. And most people don't have a clue about what Christians really believe. Uh, Peter says, give a reason. Be able to give a reason for the hope that's in you. Speak to people's heads as well as their hearts. Give them something to believe. That's how we, that's how we, as Jude puts it, contend for the faith. Jude starts his little book out and he says, I was thinking about writing uh, the book of Romans. He said, I was going to talk about our common faith, but uh, found it more necessary to write that you contend for the faith. And he goes on to explain how we do that. The little book of Jude is a wonderful little tract on evangelism. How to be effective in the battle for men and women's souls. That's what, that's what the fight is all about. Where, where are your friends out there? My friends. People up and down my street. People in your office. Your classroom. Where are they in terms of their relationship to God? Have we ever shared a word in season to those that that are weary? Say, that's what Paul means by fighting the good fight or contending for the faith. He uses an interesting word for good here. It's not his normal word. It really means beautiful or winsome. It's a word that's used in the Septuagint. Uh, the Septuagint is that Greek translation of the Old Testament, the first Greek translation of the Old Testament that I referred to from time to time. And it's helpful because it shows us how the writers of the New Testament looked at these words because they were steeped in the Old Testament. That's the word that was used in the, in the Septuagint, which was their Bible, 
for a, a Hebrew word, Yafa, that means beautiful. It's uh, the, the city in Israel today, Haifa, is based on that word. It's a beautiful city. Have ever been there? So it means fight a winsome fight. Contend for the faith, but don't be obnoxious. Don't be contentious. Paul says the servant of God must not strive. You know, it's wrong for us to get angry and abusive and to nail non-Christians wriggling against the wall. That's sinful. Nevertheless, we need to be direct. Paul says, don't be argumentative. Be kind, be gentle, be meek. But instruct them. Maybe that your love coupled with your instruction will set them free from the enemy who's taken captive to do his will. So as we speak the truth to people in love, as we're direct, but we do it in a good way, we fight the beautiful fight. That people, uh, people will be one. So a man of God is one who is known for what he fights for. Secondly, he's uh, known as He's known for what he focuses on. Verse 12, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Uh, Reese, a moment ago, made a good in, good confession in front of many witnesses. I love what he had to say. What he had to say you know, it, really, it touched me when he said, I've come to see what Jesus Christ means to me, and that's all I have to say. Oh, boy, that, that is a good confession, believe me. That's the main thing, is to see what, what our Lord has done for us. And, and Paul says, Timothy, you made the good confession before many witnesses. You were baptized, and you confessed your faith in Christ. You let the congregation know that, that Jesus Christ was Lord uh, in your life. And at that point, you... You grasped eternal life. See, eternal life is not some eschatological concept, something that we achieve when we die or when the Lord comes back. We have it now. You grasp eternal life. And Timothy, you've learned to focus on that world of unseen realities. See, uh, despite uh, uh, Flip Wilson, what you see is not what you get. I've mentioned before that heaven is not off there somewhere. It's, it's an unseen realm all around us. Uh, it, it, it's something that we cannot perceive with our natural eyes. We, we cannot see it. And living in our empirical world where we have learned to think in terms of scientific procedure, it's hard for us to even imagine that there's a world out there that we that we cannot see, we cannot hear, but it's there. And it's just as real, if not realer than the world of uh more real than what we what we see around us. Paul says, take hold of that eternal life. In other words, keep that eternal perspective, keep that heavenly outlook, that upward look, realize that this is not all there is. Nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with having money. The Old Testament says that God gives wealth, and there's some that he chooses to give wealth to. We'll talk more about that next week. But what what Paul is saying is don't focus on the here and now, but rather focus on that world of eternal realities. What matters is knowing God and growing toward him and helping others to know him, and that's the only thing that really matters. I think I've said before, as I get older... 
I believe more and more firmly in fewer and fewer things. And what life really comes down to is loving God and loving people and making visible the invisible Christ. And that's all that matters. Nothing else matters. My mother used to have a plaque over her desk that used to bug the tar out of me. It said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It got under my skin. I saw it every day for 18, 19 years until I left home and finally got into my heart. I finally began to realize the truth of that simple statement. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. One of these days we're going to stand before the Lord and if I've lived my life for money, he may say to, say to me, David, that was an admirable effort. But you miss the whole point of life, which is to pursue after me and to help others get to know me in a personal way. Believe me, that is the only thing that matters. And men and women of God will understand that's true. So a man of God is known by what he flees from, what he follows after, what he fights for, and what he's focused on. Now, as Paul often does, he gives us the incentive in verses 13 through 16. In the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. I charge you to keep this command, Paul writes. What command? Well, the command to be a man of God. To flee from mammon. To follow after righteousness. To fight the good fight. To focus on eternal realities. That's that's the command. Says, Timothy, you've made a good beginning. you made the good confession. Now stay with it to the end. Don't quit. No matter how many times you fumble the ball away, no matter how many interceptions you throw, just stay with it to, to the end, you see. Now the incentive is our Lord. You understand what he's saying? Timothy, keep the good confession going because Jesus did. He made his good confession at his baptism when the Spirit descended upon him and the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And uh, Paul is saying from that time until the time he, he made his good confession before Pontius Pilate, he never gave up. He stayed with it. Pilate's an interesting person. Uh, his last name, Pilate, comes from a Latin word, pilus, that means felt hat. And it's a little hat that freedmen wore. And uh, that is slaves, former slaves that have been given status as Roman uh, Roman citizens. And it's generally agreed that Pilate was one of these uh, unique men that literally pulled himself up by his bootstraps, came out of a slave background to become governor of Judea and was headed for great things. He was a powerful young man on his way up. And we say, why, why do these things happen? How did this man happen to have these advantages? I'll tell you why. Everything was moved toward that one day when Jesus would make a good confession before Pontius Pilate. That's why Pilate was governor of Judea. And you remember what happened? You know, all through Jesus' life, he made his good confession. It didn't matter how misjudged he was, how unappreciated, how people scoffed, scorned, were indifferent toward him. He just kept making the good confession. He kept pointing people toward God and toward eternal life, toward the knowledge of of salvation. That's why he came to earth. 
came to bring redemption, came to bring salvation to earth, he says. Finally, he stands before Pilate, the Praetorium, which was Pilate's uh, private residence in the fortress in, of Antonio, the northern part of Jerusalem. Huge castle there, in his private chambers. Pilate says, I, I, I have some questions I want to ask you. They say you're the king of Jews. Are you? Jesus said, you know, are you asking for yourself or is this some kind of legal proceeding here? Pilate says, that's what people are saying about you. Jesus said, I, I came to deliver the truth. And in effect, he said, yes, I am the king of Jews, but not one that you would expect because my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is, is an unseen kingdom of another world. Yes, I am a king. This is the truth, he said. That's why I came, to deliver the truth. You remember uh, Pilate's uh, cynical answer, ah, what's, what's truth? And he turned him over to Caiaphas and they killed him. Interestingly enough, Pilate's political fortunes went immediately downhill after that. Shortly after that, he humiliated himself with some uh, Jews that sent a bad report back to Rome. He was relieved of his position. He shortly afterwards committed suicide, we believe, although his latter history is is not that well known. But his, his political clear, uh, career was immediately eclipsed. I think he had, that was the determinative moment for Pilate. That was the defining moment when he had an opportunity to respond to Christ. And there are people out there just like that. Your your contact with them may not be the defining moment in the sense that that's the only time they, they have an opportunity to hear the gospel, but we never know. We never know. I believe God is sovereign. There are no maverick molecules in this world. There's no such thing as chance. And I believe that God brings people into our lives and we have a moment to touch that life. Perhaps your whole life is meant for one moment when you have a chance to share Christ with with someone. That's how, where you will find your your place in life. That's that's the time to give that good confession. Okay. Speak up. Talk about your Lord. Tell him what he uh, what he means to you. And then Paul concludes with this solemn benediction: God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in inapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Uh, this is probably a benediction that was taken out of the synagogue, brought over into the Christian church. Most scholars are agreed. It's uh, the faith of the Old Testament saints as well as the New Testament saints. And what Paul is, is doing here is reminding us again that there is an unseen realm of reality lying behind all that we see and and do that there is not off there somewhere, but here at the door, as Paul puts it. Uh, if he were to raise the veil, we would see God and his angels here. God on his throne, King of kings, Lord of lords, surrounded by a sea of glass, as Revelation, as the book of Revelation puts it. Uh, no waves. Nobody's fretting in heaven. No one's biting their fingernails. No one's pacing the floor wondering what's going to happen next. There are no waves on the sea. It's like glass. Complete calm, control. And the world may be falling apart around us, but when we look beyond into that unseen realm, we see God at, at work. And we, we have peace. 
I'd like to conclude with a incident from the book of Acts that uh, Carolyn brought to my attention this past week. It's the story of Stephen and his martyrdom. <clears throat> uh, Luke tells us that Stephen was full of God's grace and power. And as a result, had profoundly shaken the city with his witness and the works that God was doing through him. That's a quotation from Acts 6 8. Stephen was a nobody. If his story had not occurred uh, in Acts, we would know nothing of him. He was, of course, the first martyr. We know that. He actually was a cook and bottle washer. Uh, there, there were certain Jews that came to the apostles and said, what are we going to do about these widows? And the apostles said, well, we're concerned about the widows, but our job is to preach and pray. You appoint some people to take care of the widows. So they appointed a group of men, one of whom was Stephen. And his job was to wait on tables. Maybe he cooked in the kitchen, maybe served up, maybe he bought groceries at the grocery store. I don't know what he did, but that was his job, an unsung hero. Just serving quietly, faithfully where he was. He was God's man. But there was some unique quality about his life that caused him to attract attention. As Luke puts it, he was full of God's grace and power. Now that's what a man of God is. Someone who is filled and flooded with God. That's why I'm saying it's a name we can grow into. We're not there yet. We can grow in that direction. Here's a man who was filled with God's grace and power. Was it his intellect? No, as far as we know. Wasn't a particularly brilliant man. Was it the fact that he was highly educated? Was it his uh, humorous personality? Was it his physical strength? No, we know nothing about him. Except he just began to talk about his Lord. and He began to have a huge impact on the city. And people were saying, what is it with this person? Something extraordinary about him. Well, as, as is always the case, when you begin to make proclamation, opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These began, began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. Now, here's a man who basically, you know, he may have been inarticulate, unable to expound uh, profoundly on the gospel, but he, as people began to oppose him and argue with him, God gave him the grace to, to speak. You know, I, it, you and I must not wait around until we've got it all together and understand all the theology that's necessary to proclaim the gospel. We just need to get about the task, start telling people what God, what we've seen and heard from God is. We study the Word He teaches us. Pass it on to somebody. Begin to don't, don't tell them what other people tell you. Tell them what God is telling you as you study the Word on your own, as you learn more and more of God. Begin to share that. Impart that to people and, and see what happens. They'll argue with you, but God will give you wisdom and a spirit that will enable you to, perhaps not with, uh, you may not sound very profound, but you'll be able to answer their questions. Or if you can't, you can, you can say, well, I'll find out. I'll come back. Don't worry about about how you say what you say. Just just start talking about your Lord. This friend of mine says, if a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. So just start doing it. Just just start speaking. 
and, and see what God will do. And, and these, uh, these Cyrenian Jews, Alexandrian Jews, by the way, Alexandria was the intellectual center of the world in that, in that day, so these, these people were, were probably trying to entangle Stephen in some kind of philosophical argument. And they stirred up the people against this good man and suborned witnesses against him. And they said, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And he was dragged before the Sanhedrin, as you know, to defend him, defend himself. And Luke notes that all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, that did not mean that his face was beatific, you know, that he had an angelic face as we use that term. Every time you see an angel in Scripture and people looked in his faces, they fell flat on their own faces. It's talking about his determination, his conviction, the strength of character that shone out through his face as he began to speak about, about his Lord. Luke reports that Stephen began to contend for his faith. He answered all their charges and supplied the biblical basis for his faith and went back into the Old Testament, showed how the faith of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was really the, the faith that he that he held. He just talked about he gave away his own faith, that's what he did. He shared his faith. And the mood of the crowd turned ugly. And uh, Luke says they were furious, gnashed their teeth at him, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven. And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And you know what happened. They covered their ears. They would not listen to it. They began to stone him. And they killed him as he was dying. He said, Father, do not lay this sin. Do they, or, uh, don't, don't, don't uh, blame him for this sin. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. Basically the same words that our Lord uttered. Uh, from the cross. Now what sustained Stephen? He was a man who was filled and flooded with God. He began to live his life before people and they were impacted by it. Made visible. Invisible Christ, wherever he went, gave a reason for the hope that was in him. Did it out of a sense of dependence upon God. Did it faithfully, courageously, without fear, without favoritism. And he could do so because he could look beyond the realm of the scene and he could see the unseen. The thing that strikes me about this story is that as they were preparing to stone him, he looked him into heaven. And the heavens were ripped open. And he looked into the face of God. So he was a man who was focused on the presence of God. So a man of God is someone who is known by what he is fleeing from, what he is, what he is pursuing after, He's known as one who fights a good fight and one who is focused on that invisible realm of reality all around us. And that is within anyone's grasp. Any man, woman in this congregation can become known as a man of God and any child in this congregation can be moving in that direction. Man of God is a person who's filled and flooded with the person of God himself and who is making visible his invisible presence. Now let me encourage you during this Christmas season to give a gift to someone. This is the time of giving. 
The greatest gift that you can give to someone else is your faith. And I would encourage you as you walk out today and as you drive home with your family to begin praying for one person to whom you can give that gift. Contend for the faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Continue to follow after the Lord. Focus on the realm of eternal realities. Let's pray. I have often talked about that strange longing that everyone has, a desire for something more, an awareness that what we have is not is not fulfilling, that our paycheck is never the payoff that we thought it would be, that our success leaves us empty and unsatisfied, that we reach the top of the hill and, and realize that it's not the pinnacle that we assume that it would be. If that's your experience and you have never seriously considered Jesus Christ, I would urge you to do that this morning. This, this Christmas season would be a wonderful time to give Him the gift of your heart. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Uh, every day our Lord calls calls to us. That, that's where that, that longing comes from. That urge for something more. It's nothing more or less than a longing for God. And as you've never given your heart up to Him, just this morning, will you say, Lord Jesus, I accept you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for saving me from my sins. Give me the grace to follow you to the end of my days. And you will be his disciple. If you've never done that before, would you do that? Would you ask him to be your Lord, your Savior, your Master, your King? And if you're here and you've been living your life for goods and things and material effects, and uh, that likewise has left you unsatisfied, would you consider moving to the center? Centering your life on our Lord Jesus, laying aside the pursuit of other things and pursuing after Him and His godliness. Repenting from your materialism, from the sin of investing in, in meaningless, empty things. And would you give yourself to becoming a man of God, focused on Him, pursuing Him with all your heart. Lord, thank you again for... Uh, the simplicity of the message. So easy to, to understand. So hard to do at times because the world pulls us in every direction except in a direction that leads us to You. Lord, help us to see through all the efforts of the e evil one to confuse us, to d disturb our thinking and keep us from that pure eye that looks at you and seeks you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.